Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Alex Fetsky and Mark Moss, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thank you. Excited Thank you, to be Rob. back here. Yeah. See you again, man. It's great to have you guys. Um, today, we're going to be jumping into this book you guys wrote, The Uncommunist Manifesto. And um, I guess what would be really useful is to just set the stage here. You know, why did you guys write this book? Um, and maybe you could provide a little context, as you said, with the original, like, what this book is intended to be a counterpoint to, I think, which is the original, um, it was Marx's manifesto to the Communist Party, right? The Communist Manifesto itself. Yeah, so Marx and Engels wrote the original one. I mean, it was actually Marx who wrote it. And I think Engels just, you know, threw a few lines in there and funded the damn thing uh, while Marx sat there coming up and conjuring up a uh, an intellectual justification for entitlement and laziness, basically. Uh, so we thought we should turn the, turn the table on that. But Mark, maybe since... Uh, since you were sort of the the original brainchild of this, why don't you give the story? Yeah, and yeah, so flow into it. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, for those that don't know who uh, Alex and I are, I mean, we both are. You know, we like to create a lot of content, um, and I think it's really about trying to change perspectives and really educate people and give people like new ways to look at things. And so, you know, we're always trying to figure out a way we can kind of help change the world through education. And uh, you know, we we both are are capitalists and. Um, when you're an educator and you talk about capitalism, you have to think about the counterpoints. And so socialism and communism and things like that. And myself, I personally have done a lot of research into communism and, and Marxism and Karl Marx. And um, admittedly, I just had never actually read the Communist Manifesto. And it was uh, about a year and a half ago or oh, a little over a year ago, uh, I decided to pick it up and read it. And it was only a 45 minute read. It's about 8,000 words. 
And um, I was pretty shocked. <laughs> this was at the time uh, we had, you know, Marxism seems to be having this resurgence. Um, we had the leaders of BLM coming out and proclaiming that they were trained Marxists. And so if all these people are picking up Marxism, proclaiming they're trained Marxists, well, what is that? What does that mean? And so I read the book and I was, I was completely shocked. I'm like, does, does anybody even know what's in this book? I mean, I, I can't believe it. I'm shocked that anybody would go along with these ideas. And so um, we went to, uh, Alex and I, we were in El Salvador together and I had brought a copy of the book and I'm like, have you ever read this book? Cause it, it's so out, it's just so out there. It's crazy. And he said, no, he hadn't really either. And, and again, it was like, if people read this, I can't believe they would go along with it. And so uh, I was like, man, maybe we should take this book and just rewrite it. And that way, you know, keep it accessible, keep it short, keep it easy to read. And that way people could be exposed to these ideas. And then we could give them, you know, counterpoints, not really counterpoints, but just better ideas. I believe good ideas win because they're better. And so um, we could kind of expose these ideas, provide better ideas. And so we kind of planted that seed. And then uh, about January of this year, he's like, hey, let's do that. And we got together, took an, taken a lead, I think that you've been part of, which is a, a book sprint. And so we locked ourselves in a, in a Airbnb for about a week and, and knocked it out. And that's kind of how it came together um, from, from a short end. Yeah. And I, I think what's interesting is w when we sat down to write it, we were thinking we're going to write like counterpoint by counterpoint, or at least that's how my head was thinking about it in the beginning. I remember taking notes while I was still in Columbia before Mark and I had caught up and I was like, Hey man, I've done a bunch of already writing. And like I had taken piece by piece of the communist manifesto because Marx just sits there. And, and if you ever do read the book, it's like a, if you want to prescribe brain damage to someone, you give them the communist manifesto because it's like within an hour, you'll be like, what did I just read? Like he, not only does he contradict himself, he, he sits there and he just makes these random claims about, this group of people he uh, labels as the bourgeoisie, you know, and then he talks about the fact that the only relationship they have uh, in the family unit is, uh, is a commercial transactional relationship. So like he makes all these assumptions and assessments about people he neither likes nor hangs around nor has anything to do with. And like the whole book is just full of crap like that. And yeah, we, we, I guess, I started initially writing point by point and it's just, I'm really happy. And in fact, we're both really happy with how the book turned out because it started off as this rebuttal, but then it kind of took on a life of its own. And I mean, the, the, the chapter structure is a little, you know, similar to, to the communist manifesto itself, like particularly chapter three, Marx takes the readers onto this sort of journey about, you know, that's not real communism. This is real communism. You know, the, the whole classic try my communism and it'll work. And, and we sort of did a similar thing. We, we called it the phantom variations of capitalism. And what we pointed out in there is that what people confuse as capitalism is really, you know, things like cronyism and technocracy and, you know, oligopolies, monopolies, colonialism, et cetera, which none of those are truly representative of this idea of capitalism. So anyway, without going on too many tangents there, I think, What's been produced here is, is a really nice, condensed, concise book with a couple strong ideas that I think people can take away. And what I've sort of been telling people recently is that it's one of those books that is designed to orange pill people that are either more conservative 
or more libertarian sort of oriented, but still haven't had the light bulb moment specifically for Bitcoin. And, and I think the way we do that is we don't mention Bitcoin much in the book. There's like, you know, a single definition with a single paragraph. There's a couple mentions of Bitcoin throughout and there's like a, a page about Bitcoin. But the ideas and the essence of the book are predicated on the existence of something like Bitcoin. So if you read the book and you agree with its premises, you have to walk away thinking that shit, you know, th this, this is amazing and it needs something like Bitcoin for, for it to, to happen. So I think it's a real, it's a powerful text, I think, to help people along that journey. So anyway, I think that's, a, that's probably a good bit of context on the story of how the book emerged. That's really, really cool stuff. Um, what, what do you think contributed to the original success of the manifesto, uh, Marx's original manifesto? Why was it so successful if it has so many um, ridiculous ideas in its contents? It Mark, do you want people, to take this one? Yeah, I, I, it gives people um, a reason to be lazy and be entitled. So it paints people as victims. So it, it, it takes two arbitrary classes of people, the rich and the poor. What defines somebody as rich or poor? Is there a certain dollar amount? Uh, and then if they're rich, if they cross over to become rich, are they automatically an oppressor? So there's like these two arbitrary classes. But throughout the book, he's constantly framing the poor people as victims, victim mentality. Um, they don't have anything to offer. All they have is their labor. Their labor will never be capital. The rich people are oppressing them. You know, all the stuff that we see today. And so I think it gives the poor people, the, or more likely the, the lazy people, the people without the motivation, it gives them some reason why they're oppressed. Um, it also tells them, I think it's really summed up in one statement that Marx made, which is to each according to their ability, to each according to their need. So it gives them this framework where like, hey, look, I should have everything I need. It should be all provided to me. I should just do the minimum that I want to do, and other people should be willing to give that to me. Um, those people should go work really, really hard. And I should just sit here and write philosophy all day and they should take care of me. And so it gives people this, um, entitlement and, um, there's a lot of other reasons why our world is in that situation. But I think that's, in my opinion, especially, like I said, that one, that one, uh, phrase that he said, I think really is what people latch onto. And that's why they like these ideas. Um, let someone else take care of me. Let someone else have that responsibility. We see that throughout the world today, people wanting to assign more and more responsibilities to somebody else. Um, and so it gives them a framework for that uh, to happen. And then I think the, the other side of it is uh, there's the other side, there's the group that want the control, that want the power. And so then um, in a system like this, in a, in a Marxist type system where we take you know all the capital, all the power away from the people and then have it controlled by a small group of people. And then so obviously um, leaders like to latch onto that. So when you see like the World Economic Forum today, for example, they're, they're Marxist ideologies. Um, and so they latch onto that for the power. It gives them a reason why they should have that power as well. Yeah, what do I... I'd also add to that, I think Mark mentioned simplicity and the the simplest things when it comes to a message, like it's it's them, they're to blame, uh, you know, it's conspiracy, you know, it's lizards behind a red curtain, you know, it's that group, et cetera. That seems to be an effective way to rally people around a particular cause. It's, you know, it's, it's their problem. And I'd say a lot of this stuff actually stemmed, I've been, 
on a history binge for the last couple of months. And right now I'm doing sort of the French revolution. And a lot of these ideas, these Marxist ideas actually stemmed from that period. Uh, you see the, the French were the original ones who tried to uh, institute, they, they basically tore down the patriarchy uh, metaphorically and literally speaking by, you know, guillotining their own King. Uh, they, they, they flipped society upside down and they, they were really pushing for kind of egalitarianism and equality and all of these ideas, which are really collectivist in nature. And who was their inspiration? Rousseau, surprise, surprise. Um, you know, they, they basically, I think they gutted a church and they turned it into the, the pantheon and they, they went and dug up Rousseau's uh, grave and they embalmed him and they put him in there. Basically, like all this crazy stuff with the Jacobins. And anyway, that, that's, a, that's another whole, rabbit hole there but marx was quite inspired by the the leftist jacobin radical french revolution types and you know you had this really transformative phase because feudalism really ended i guess during that french revolution era that was the i guess the official ending i mean that there was you know there was uh, an echo of feudalism beyond that. But it was in that transition time where this class of people, the bourgeoisie, rose up. And that was when the Industrial Revolution really took off, sort of early 1800s to mid-1800s. And the book Mark, that Marx wrote was written in 1850. It's funny, it's written in the same year as uh, Bastiat's The Law was written. And I always say, if like, people read that book instead of the Communist Manifesto, the world would be a very different place. But Unfortunately, nobody knows about the law, but everyone knows about the freaking Communist Manifesto. Um, and, and I think what Marx did was, and, and Mark, Mark, not Marx, just mentioned that, you know, this, this sort of this entitlement attitude. And when, when you read the book, you'll, you'll, particularly if you're well-read, which I know you are and, and everyone listening to this generally is, is you'll, you'll sense two things from Marx. Number one, is that he's got a really, really, really poor understanding of human psychology. He just thinks that you just remove pri economic privation and everyone will be happy. Like it's just very one-dimensional view of humans. Um, but second, it's this whole, and we answer this in the fourth chapter of our book, as we, we ask the question, why was Marxist Marxism and Marxist ideas so popular and why have they persisted? And they're effectively an academic justification for entropy and entitlement like it's much easier to bring things down than it is to you know hold them up it's easier to destroy than it is to create it's easier to sit around at home eating cheetos than going to the gym and lifting it's easier to sit there as a keyboard warrior and insult people than it is to actually cre create and produce something so all like the entropy is the easy path and he just gave a beautiful eloquent confusing albeit, uh, you know, academic justification for behaving like that. And people seem to latch onto that stuff. You know, it just feeds on that element of humanity, which is, um, which well, is it's, 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 it's human nature. And so, you know, a lot of times through Marxism or Keynesian, um, they, they discount the humans incentives and motivations. And so everybody's just a, a, a line on a spreadsheet. They're in a model, for example, um, but people, we have human nature. And so I think it really appeals to people's uh, human nature. If you might even call it sinful nature, greed, lust, envy, 
right? And so we naturally have those things if you believe in that. Um, and so it appeals right to that, right? We lust, we have envy for what other people have. Um, we're, we're lazy, we're sloth, right? And so it gives people justification for being lazy. It gives people justification for having greed, uh, justification for being envious of their neighbor's things and stuff like that. So it appeals right to that sinful nature. And I think um, there's definitely an argument for that as well. You know, a, a good versus evil type argument. <clears throat> really makes a lot of sense. Because um, one of the, I have read, I don't think I've read the entire manifesto, but I know measure number five, something I quote a lot that he was basically advocating for the central bank, right? The central, mm -hmm. central state monopoly on cash and credit. And I like that, <clears throat> that description, I think it was Alex, you just gave that as an excuse for entropy. Because mm -hmm. that's, you could, you could put Keynesian economics in the same bucket, right? It's this pseudo scientific academic excuse for money printing, which is, which is entropy. It's the same mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, I get this weird. These ideas are very appealing at kind of your first order level of thinking. And I guess that's why it captures so many captures masses. Right. But as soon as you think about Absolutely. it, two or three orders deep, the whole thing falls apart. Um, so that's, I right, appreciate all the framing there. I liked too, that your book opened with definitions. Because so much of this argumentation, I think, ends up with people just talking past each other, right? Where yeah. one guy has this conception of capitalism as like the most evil thing that's ever happened. And someone else has the conception of capitalism as just the natural emergent reality when you leave people alone. And when they have, when you have two, you harbor two different definitions for the same word, you can't, you can't have a meeting of the minds. So right. I really like that you open the definitions. A couple of them I'd like to read that I actually thought were really good. Um, first one here is capital. You guys define capital as time, energy, matter slash material resources and their higher order products. Capital extends to both the physical and the metaphysical realm. Your thoughts are your most precious metaphysical form of capital. Your time is your most scarce form of objectively measurable capital and natural resources are a form of scarce, physical, tangible capital. And then you go into a really good definition of capitalism as well. Uh, maybe I can throw that over to one of you guys and we could talk about that. Yeah, the, I would say, I would say as the definitions and we have to definitely credit Alex for that, that was his, his idea and it was definitely a good call. And, and I think really some of that came from the word capitalism because I've mm. found myself over the last couple of years um, starting to to use that word less and less or even stopping to use that word and instead just using free markets mm -hmm. because that word uh, capitalism is so misunderstood or mis often used and they, it's equated to slavery and colonialism and all these things and capitalism is those things and so it's easier just to call it free markets which is more descriptive and so um, Alex was, uh, you know, no, we, we need to make, we need to make capitalism great again. Like, let's really dig in here. Let's really expand on what it is. Um, and so I think that led to the, then these definitions that we have here. Um, I'll, I'll let Alex dig in on the definition, but I would say just on the capital, one of the things I think that's important uh, for that word specifically in reference to this book is that in the original book, as I already kind of alluded to, is that Marx makes the case that the poor, uh, the proletariat, they have no capital. They have nothing to offer but their labor. Their labor never leads to them having capital. Mm 
And I think, I think there's two things there. So one, obviously, in our definition of the word capital, he's wrong. They have uh, other things. I mean, their thoughts, their ideas, their intellectual thoughts are capital, intellectual capital. But I think it's also important to understand the time and the place that he was writing this. And so he was writing this approximately 80 years after the start of the Industrial Revolution. And so it was at a time where, you know, he, he wanted to write philosophy. He didn't want to go into being an attorney like his parents, but the world didn't value that at that time. He couldn't earn a living as a philosopher at that time. And so his, his intellectual capital wasn't there at that, at that point in time. And so I think it's important to understand today, of course, you can make, make a living being a philosopher. Uh, Robert, you're doing a pretty good job at that. <laughs> Uh, and so, but I think at that time, maybe that, that shed light to it, but, but today we can see that uh, you can be a writer, right? You, there's a lots of other forms of capital. And so that's one reason why I think that is specifically important for this book because of the way he defined it. And Alex, I'll let, go ahead and let you fill in the rest on capitalism. Yeah, I think just to tack on to your piece there about Marx and the period in which he wrote this is that j just like individuals, have to go through stages in life like before you become a mature adult what do you do you make a bunch of stupid mistakes like you know when you're a kid you get on a bike you fall off you make a mess of yourself etc like civilization also has to go through these stages of growth and some of them are going to be messy particularly the more trans transitional periods like the industrial revolution was a real stark contrast to what preceded it and th there was a lot of movement and he was right about a lot of his observations where Marx really goes wrong is about his conclusions in relation to the observations. So he observed that you've got these people, they're out there working and it's next to slave labor. Um, you know, they're moving from the farms to the cities and their quality of life seems to be decreasing. Um, and there's people taking advantage of it, but this is the process that they have to go through. And the same as a business, like look at a startup, for example, when you're the CEO of a startup, you're cleaning the toilet, you're, you're your own personal you know, assistant, you're emailing everyone, you know, you're running out, to, you're doing everything. Um, when you've kind of gone through that, then you, you, you have the ability to pay others to, to do that. And then they go through their own journey. And I think in chapter three of the book, we kind of say, you have an option, you can sort of eat shit today and eat caviar tomorrow. Um, or, you know, the other way around, like you, you chew up your resources now. Um, and, and that's kind of, I guess, to give Marx a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, he was right in the guts of that. And that kind of revolutionary transitionary period is going to last decades. So, so it's kind of hard when you're in the midst of that to really be able to see beyond. But clearly, you know, there's counterfactuals, people like Frederick Bastiat, who could see beyond that. And, you know, maybe it was just that Marx was a hack writer, which, I mean, looking at his crap, he was a hack writer. Uh, maybe that's why he could make any money because there were other writers who were making really good money during that time. Um, but, you know, maybe they were just producing better content. Hmm. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of wrap that, but to, I don't know if you've got any comments on that or if you want me to riff on the capitalism. I, I just wanted to say it's sort of ironic that, you know, Marx wanted to be this professional writer or philosopher, but he couldn't. And he couldn't because, well, I don't want to say exclusively because, but at least a contributing reason was there was an underdeveloped division of labor. There wasn't enough capitalism to support Marx as a, mm -hmm. or Marx mm -hmm. as a writer or philosopher. So right. kind of interesting that he's writing 
to demonize the very thing he doesn't have enough of to accomplish his professional aim. True. Yeah. I guess in his mind, though, uh, the solution to that wasn't to you know, create more division of labor. It was just to, and this is what Mark mentioned earlier, is uh, from each uh, of their ability to each according to their need or from each according to their ability. And, you know, that kind of redistribution, it's like, well, if I'm a writer, I should have the same as what you have, Mr. Business Owner, um, and therefore I can do what I want. So, yeah. But and, 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 but, 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 uh, I was going to say, to Robert's point, though, I mean, he, he, he's right. He just didn't, he couldn't see it at that point in time, and, and not to give him the benefit of the doubt, but, oh, but it is. So uh, he didn't know it, uh, Robert, to your point, but that was the case, right? So as capitalism continued to emerge and as division of labors continued to um, be divided, then of course that became in demand as it is today. He just didn't know it at that time, which is why, again, so many of these things you have to take into account the period of time that he wrote this from and the, Alex hit on. Um, you had before the industrial revolution, everybody worked in the farms and the cottage industry. So I would imagine you had entire families that, well, I wouldn't imagine, my dad grew up on a farm, I know. Uh, the entire family works on the farm together. <laughs> Like all the kids, everybody's working together. So I would imagine as those farmers moved into the cities, probably the whole family moved into the factories. I would imagine that those machines were brand new. They probably didn't know how to run them very good. They probably broke down all the time. They were probably very unsafe. And so it probably created very harsh working conditions, right? So the point that Alex was making, there was that transition and it was kind of a necessary thing. Um, so he, 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 you know, given him the benefit of the doubt, uh, but we now have, um, perspective. We now have history to show us that these ideas are wrong. And that's why I think we need to dig in and kind of dust them off and look at them again. Totally. So to dig into the capitalism definition, and so I think this is one of the pieces of the book that I'm most proud of, actually, is that we, we took on or we offer people a novel definition for capitalism where most of the time when people are arguing for or against capitalism they kind of frame it in as a political modality in their heads and they say oh you know capitalism is you know right wing and i'm a left-wing person and fuck you basically like it's just it, it 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 gets thrown out straight away because of some form of political leaning and what we tried to do here with this definition and it's funny, the way this definition came to me was I was writing that uh, Bitcoin is not democratic series. And I had someone who's an anarchist who I uh, respect their work. And she was uh, talking, she, she had a comment in there on one of my pieces. And we kind of went back and forth on this thing. I'm like, no, that's not what I mean, this and that. And I kind of went through and I created this kind of definition of, I was like, you know what? Capitalism is not political for fuck's sake. It's a, it's just a process. We, we turn, human beings turn chaos into order. That's what we do. And we're always trying to find a more effective and efficient way to do something. We've been always doing that. And I kind of coupled that with this idea of, as we define capital, it's like, it's time, energy, and resources. What do we want to do with these three things? We want to use them more effectively and more efficiently. And that's kind of, the, the genesis of uh, this definition is when we sat down and Mark and I kind of started going back and forth on this word. And I was like, man, we've got to define this in here. And I think it may have actually been this word that kind of triggered the whole definition idea in the entire book is that let's get very clear on what we mean by this. It's, it's not a political modality. It is simply a process and capitalism exists all the time. It exists since the first time someone threw a stick at some animal to save time and energy in acquiring food. 
and it existed at the next step the the dude that was making the fire and i killed the animal and we cooked the animal and we share it together like division of labor capitalism day one and it exists in communist states known as the black market it exists in socialist states you know known as the community you know market or whatever so it's like it always exists, exists. In, pri- in prisons and preschools pr- everywhere yeah. so the, the question is how much does the political wrapper or the political modality surrounding it suffocate that process or enable it that's that's really the question that's where politics is kind of like a wrapper around capitalism as a process and later in the book which we'll discuss i think you know in a later in this episode or subsequent but we've got this really nice graph that we drew out and we sort of said you know you got left and right politics uh let's tip that on its side and left and right politics is one side of a spectrum and capitalism actually on the other side it sits with you know organic free market emergent processes so yeah i just think that's a powerful takeaway for people that's wonderful because it is, uh, I think, I can't remember who said this, maybe it was safety that capitalism is what happens when you leave people alone. You know, it's just this emergent economic process. We've all got Absolutely. wants. We can satisfy more of the wants working cooperatively than we can in isolation. And that's just the hard practical reality. So you leave people alone, surprise, surprise, they start to trade with one another to create the division of labor. Um, I will I want to read this full definition of capitalism because it's pretty damn good. You guys wrote that perhaps the most misunderstood of all the words in this list, capitalism is simply another word for progress, innovation, or evolution. Capitalism is not a system of rule, rules, or politics. It is an organic process that happens in all systems. It is inherently apolitical. No body is in charge of it, nor can there be forms of capitalism. Capitalism just is. Minus all the definitions projected on it, capitalism is just the natural process of taking resources like time, energy, and matter and turning them into something of higher order value. Its forcing functions are efficiency and effectiveness. Its corrective mechanism is loss and its positive feedback loop is growth. It's impossible for there to be forms of capitalism where a they are in charge for it is an organic process that happens in all systems. If an economy is a complex system made up of human interactions, capitalism is the evolutionary process. All systems of rule, order, and organization, even socialism and communism, have capitalism, quote-unquote, in them. The question is simply, to what degree is this natural process allowed to occur, and to what degree does politics and the short-sighted human desire to control everything else get in the way? If an economy is a complex system made up of human interactions, capitalism is the word we give to its process of innovation or evolution. Really, really good stuff. And I I wish more people saw capitalism that way. Um, And this flows nicely into the next definition, which we've already mentioned, but I think is also important to read, which is entropy. And as Alex, you just said, we're humans. We turn chaos into order. It's what we do. Um, another way to say that, perhaps, is we turn entropy into energy, into capital, into goods, right? We're, we're taking the unknown and turning it into something useful, basically. 
And so you guys define entropy as a metaphysical and measurably physical property of the universe, most commonly associated with a progression away from order and toward chaos, disorder, randomness, or uncertainty. Physically, it's the loss of heat in a cup. Metaphysically, it flows in the opposite direction of life. I really think this word is probably the most important word across all bodies of thought, right? Because it connects economics, it connects physics, it connects a lot of domains, biology. Um, may I just, I'll just throw it over to you guys. How, because this is also, you're taking a bit of a risk here. I think once you bring up the word entropy, you got to really make sure the audience is tuned in with you on the same page. Otherwise you might lose them. So um, yeah, I'll just throw it over to you. To say, how did you get entropy woven into the narrative here? Go ahead, Alex. All right. This one, this one was one of my uh, favorite ones because I, I've been toying with this. And Rob, you know, you and I go back and like thinking about all this deep weird shit that you know Bitcoin does to the world, and you know we get into all these you know space cadet ideas. And entropy has been one that has sat with me for a long time. And, and I think one of the first people that really wrote a good piece on that was Gigi in the the Bitcoin times that we did back in 2019 together. And he, he wrote a whole piece about, you know, Bitcoin kind of represents that edge of chaos and order. And it, it takes, you know, it takes this random set of stuff and turns it into something, you know, at the tip, um, the, the chaos transforms into order, et cetera, et cetera. So, Anyway, as you said, it is risk bringing it in because number one, you either A, lose people or number two is you get the real uh, like literal physicist people and be like, no, entropy is a physical phenomenon and you will not find it in economics. And it's like, well, you kind of do because, you know, decay and uh, uncertainty and disorder actually occurs in, in a social and a civilizational setting. And the more, the more I think about this concept of entropy, I kind of see it as the, you know, the, the force that is, is in a sense op, in opposition to life, or maybe life is the only force that is in opposition to entropy, right? So, so everything seems to be subject to entropy. And life itself seems to be this thing that, you know, is contrary to entropy. It just, despite the entropy of the entire universe occurring life just seems to march on in the opposite direction and it continues. And, and I guess using that kind of framing, I look at capitalism, the process of capitalism as pro-life, like th this is pro-existence, pro-life, pro-progress. And to want to stifle that or to stultify it and to subject it to entropy is like pro-death, like it's the opposite way. And in many ways, I think as humans, like our highest calling is to maintain or, you know, be stewards of life, be stewards of this force that moves in opposition to entropy. And, you know, Sailor and I had a discussion a couple of weeks back and we were kind of discussing this idea of like human beings, what are we? We're engineers, we're builders, you know, we back to that chaos and order thing is we take 
things and stuff and chaos and we you know figure out a way to tinker and engineer them into something of of greater order and that that is an anti-entropic process like it is fundamentally that so so i think this is really important and i know for some people you know it might come off a little bit woo woo and fucking overly metaphysical but i don't know man i i think it's uh i think it's a poignant definition and very i think it fits within the framework of what we've written it, it fits within the framework of what we've written too, back to, I think, really the original question, which is why does this appeal to so many people? Mm. And so entropy settles in even into our human body, right? Where like, if I'm not constantly working to improve my body, my life, then it's falling, falling apart. If I'm not working to build my muscles, my muscles are, are falling away. Um, and back to kind of those, those human natures, those, that sinful nature of, of laziness and greed. Right. And so, um, I, instead of doing the hard work to get the things that I want, the entropy would lead me to then just stealing from my neighbor. And so it just leads to this uh, destruction. And so um, that's the natural force. We have to counteract that. Um, Marxism appeals to that human nature of entropy that allows things just to kind of settle down to their lowest common denominator. Um, and so we, you know, this whole book really is a message of hope. Where we're really trying to challenge people to become better versions of themselves, which would then be working against that force of entropy and so it's kind of woven in throughout this uh a few times in, in that in that type of instance yeah it's it's really good um yeah I, I just think it's a very important term so i'm glad you guys included it and i there's a quote by i think it's gk chesterton he says a dead thing can go with the stream only a living thing can swim against it and so, mm -hmm. you know, that's what we're, that's what life is all about, right? Is fighting entropy. It's almost like the it is the definition of life, essentially. So, and you see that impulse, that that biological impulse, extended into the collective as capitalism, right? That's you could almost say capitalism, or maybe innovation more specifically. It's like a non-biological evolution. It's a way of refining things and making them higher order, more valuable. So. Um, I guess this kind of gets gets into why this is we, this is often called natural law, right? Like life, liberty, and property. It's just the way of nature. Um, so that really good stuff there. And you also in the the definitions here, you split. We talked about the difference between fairness and equality. Now this one's very important too because there's a whole lot of nonsense today that you know everything needs to be equal and again if you use that lens of entropy like there's only one place that life forms are equal and that's in the grave right when they're dead anytime something's alive it's all unequal everything's in a different position in space a different place in time different circumstances there's like there's no equality whatsoever um yet we have very loud spokespeople for equality today again i think only thinking one level deep, like it just sounds good. Equality sounds better than inequality, but they haven't thought through it far enough. Yeah. So what, how do you guys differentiate between fairness and equality? To, to the point you made earlier, they don't go past that first order of thinking. And so everybody thinks equality sounds great until you think about it. And so um, the opposite of what most people think, they look at Bezos and go, man, he's so rich. Um, why, why does he have all those things? Why can't I have those things? Why is there no equality? 
Um, but then maybe they don't realize that he probably worked a hundred hours a week for 20 weeks. I'm sorry, for 20 years, do they want that? Right. And most people don't. And so they might want the equal outcome, but they didn't want the equal work that he had to go through. But I think specifically for fairness, um, I'll let Alex do the equality piece because he has a good little analogy there. But for fairness, I like to think of just in sports. And so um, if we look at the world, back to Bezos, like the world, especially the United States, we're very angry at rich people today, right? Um, we see our politicians like AOC, you know, wearing these dresses, tax the rich and these things like this. And so there's like this attack at rich people. And part of the reason why is because they feel that um, they've gotten rich by stealing from the poor. By them getting richer, other people have been held down poor. But if you took a game of like basketball, like sports, for example, LeBron James is, you know, way more talented. He has, he's way more unequal than me in basketball. And he's more unequal than a lot of people in basketball, but yet nobody looks at him as he stole from somebody else. And I think it goes back to the fairness. And so the game of basketball, um, everybody's different. They're faster, they're stronger, they're taller, they're shorter, they're smarter, whatever they are, but the rules are the same and it's fair. And I think everybody recognizes that without even really thinking about it. So uh, a lot of people watch basketball and nobody's mad that LeBron James makes more money or that he's better than I am because it's, it's deemed as fair. But our, unfortunately, our financial system, most people don't understand the financial system, which, of course, the name of your show is What is Money? You're trying to help people understand that, but they know, they know that it's not fair. And so I think that's really the difference of that. When the rules of the game apply to different people differently and are changed arbitrarily, people don't want to play the game. And they look at anybody that gets ahead in that game as in cheating or stealing from them. Totally. There's nothing much I can really add to that, except, you know, really, if, if you want to, if you want an equal outcome, you need to have uh, unfair an unfair process and if you have a fair process you're going to have an unequal outcome like they're, they're polar opposites they don't live in the same world and, and and i think a lot of people naively you know say equality i think meaning fairness uh, and and this is comes back to what mark just mentioned and and i think what you rob mentioned is that people have this innate you know this sort of visceral subconscious sense that the game is rigged and I mean, if you played a game of Monopoly with someone and that person was just pulling money out of the, the till and playing banker, right? Uh, and no matter what you do, you can't beat him. Uh, you don't play the game. Like it, it's unfair. And no, nobody likes a rigged game. And it's, it's like, it's almost wired. I mean, no, I don't think it's almost wired. I think it is wired into our sort of DNA and, and we can sense it. We don't like it. It's just being conflated. And this sort of ties back into the whole, French Revolution again is that the ideologies, you know, during the late Enlightenment period and that sort of manifested during the French Revolution, were skewed and they were more focused on equality uh, instead of fairness, and that had devastating consequences downstream. And you know, those ideas haven't been. They, as you both said, it's a first order level of thinking and it sounds cute and nice on the surface and people are too lazy to think any deeper and to think about the consequential na consequential nature of uh, particular decisions and then you know they go parroting equality 
ultimately to their detriment and everybody else's detriment. I think it's also a sign of maturity, right? So um, mm -hmm. you talked about people misunderstand or confuse equality and fairness. Or, and um, I was just thinking, you know, uh, Robert, Rob and I both have kids. And so kids learn at a very early age. That's not fair. Like, uh, you can't have ice cream, but somebody, another kid has ice cream. That's not fair. They have ice cream. I want ice cream. And that's something that kids deal with. And as my dad told me, and I tell my kids, life isn't fair. Um, and eventually you grow up and you realize that life's not fair. I have to play my hand different. You know, if I played basketball against LeBron James, I'd have to have a different approach. Um, but I think it's just back to that. Don't think past first order thinking people just haven't matured to the point to realize that LeBron's just bigger and faster than I am. And I'll just have to play a different game. Life isn't fair. Um, and so, but maybe those people haven't matured. They're still crying out for equality. Um, the same as a little kid would continue to say things aren't fair all the time. Yeah, maybe, maybe we need to just adjust our language. Maybe we need to teach our kids that life is fair, but it's not equal. But, you know, maybe that actually only relates to a world in which, you know, 100 years from now, Bitcoin, we're on a Bitcoin standard, in which case life will be fair. Because right now, fucking game is rigged. But yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting, yeah, that's, interesting piece. That's the key, right? Is the stability or predictability of rules when you have stable immutable rules you just play the game whatever the game is right you can't can't change the rules can't bend the rules can't break the rules so you're only left with the options of playing by the rules and that it's those games where you get very unequal outcomes like lebron james um but they're also the games that people enjoy, right? People, you feel engaged in a game where you're subjected to the same rules and constraints as other players but in a game where a player somehow hijacks the rule-making apparatus, I mean, that, that's the power to win forever, right? If I can control the rules, how could you ever beat me? I, I, there's nothing you can do to beat me if I can change the rules. And that's what we've got in our money today, right? These constantly shifting rules. It's dispossessing people, like really hard on the poor and those, those near the bottom of, of the wealth hierarchy. And it's constantly enriching those near the, the fiat spigot. So um, I agree. We understand this at like a deep genetic level. Even if you don't understand it cognitively, people understand that maybe money printing is fucking them over. They feel it, right? They know something's wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets dangerous, where education is important, because then they might be really quick to attach to Marx's ideology. So um, it's good that. And if you took it, if you took it in a fair system, so um, one, you know, one story we've all heard many times is talking to, especially the college age kids about Marxism or socialism, right? And it's like, um, well, um, how about we just uh, distribute the, the grades fairly, right? Like uh, you stayed home and studied every single weekend while your friends went out and partied at all the frat parties um, and they barely passed and you got straight A's. So why don't we just even out that score? And the kids would be like, oh no, like we don't want that uh, because they, they view that as a fair system. Nobody would advocate for breaking LeBron James legs and putting him in a wheelchair to make it more fair. And so I think, you know, it's easier to see it in that context where you have a fair set of rules um, as opposed to a system of shifting rules. Yeah. And if we just had property relationships that, that wouldn't change, right, or couldn't be easily violated, that's, I think that's the stability of rule set we're looking for in socioeconomics. It's like mm -hmm. whatever you earned or worked to create, you keep that value. Um, I think and so that. 
I want to just chime in yeah, one more thing, Rob, if I can. Um, it, it's it's a thought that came to me recently. I, I wrote that whole remnant piece, uh, this three-part remnant series last year, which was one of my more brutal kind of pieces of writing. But I, I had this kind of, I was on a spaces while I was in Nashville, actually, on a Twitter spaces. And, you know, so, someone on the Twitter spaces you know, this lady, I don't know who she is, uh, what her name is or whatever, but she kind of said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm in Bitcoin. Uh, the only reason I'm in Bitcoin is because I, you know, want to uh, help all the disadvantaged people. And man, I just had to bite my tongue. I was like ready to call bullshit because I think coming back to the, the piece you said earlier that Seyfedin may have said is, you know, capitalism is leaving people alone and they, they figure it out. And, and, and I've come to believe like one of the deepest roots of evil, like, and I'm trying not to say the root of all evil, because I think there's many deep roots of the tree of evil, but one of the thickest, deepest roots is the need to meddle in everyone's life um, or to project um, help, uh, you know, like I'm here to be everyone's savior or whatever. And that, that thing, like that inability to leave people alone, that, you know, inability to not push all the fucking buttons in the cockpit when you're flying the plane is, um, is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a deep form of evil. And you, you see it like when, when you're sitting there reading the freaking history of the French revolution, like all you had was these people scrambling to fix everything for everyone and in the process, they broke everything. They freaking instituted the terror. Uh, they cut all everyone's heads off. And then in the end, the people who instituted the cutting of everyone's heads got their own fucking heads cut off in the process. Like it was this big clusterfuck that didn't have to happen. But there were two, like, you know, you hear Rospierre's uh, discourses and the notes and everything that he left is like he took it on his shoulders to work 20 hours a week to fix France. It's like, bro, get the fuck out of everyone's business. No one asked you to do anything. Fuck off. Like, leave me alone. And, and I think goodness in, in, a, in a real sense is leaving people alone. So to tie this back to what we were just talking about before is when a game is fair um, and, you know, you're not out there trying to, like, you know, jump in the middle of the game and put the short guy on your fucking shoulders so that you can equal out uh, everyone's height. Um you actually get a game that is worth playing. And on top of that, the person who is, you know, being helped and didn't even ask for fucking help um, doesn't feel this resentment towards the person being helped. Like, you, you know, when you're randomly just being helped by some institution or state or something that you didn't ask for, kind of lowers your psychological internal value in a sense. And to, to, tie, to finally tie this back to this article that I've kind of like, I wrote it at two o'clock in the morning. I was pissed off about something. I think there was noise in the hotel or whatever. And I wrote, it's called Bitcoin is right. And I said, I don't care as much about, you know, how Bitcoin is going to help bank the unbanked and, you know, all the impoverished and everything like fucking great. It's going to do something for them. But you know what I really, 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 really like about Bitcoin? I like it because it's fucking right. And what it's going to do is it's going to make the game fair. And it's going to force me as an individual, not through coercion, but through just physical reality in the same way as gravity uh, compels me not to jump off a cliff, Bitcoin will compel me to call upon the best version of myself in order to better compete in the marketplace 
and excel and do what I need to do. And th that that is why I'm in it because it's the right thing to do. And if someone is fundamentally better than me, fucking power to them. They will kick my ass and that's the way it should be. And I'm not here to try and cheat because to cheat is to degrade yourself and to be a lower version of yourself. And, and that's kind of what we've done to society. I think in this whole incessant need to meddle in everyone's business, to help everyone, to equalize everything, to, you know, we, we've basically incentivized cheating and fucking around with the, with the board game so that everything is all convoluted and everyone feels like a subconscious sense of like, victimhood and entitlement and you know like something's wrong with the game and all this sort of weird stuff is sort of going on subconsciously and none of us are actually aspiring to be the greatest version of ourselves that win a fair goddamn game and i just think that's an important thing to mention here there was a few threads there but anyway well i like that a lot actually and you know, to your point, even if the guy that's better than you in whatever line of business goes into the marketplace and outcompetes you, you still benefit, right? You still get whatever product or service he's creating or delivering at a lower cost. So it's still, it's accretive to everyone, right? Even though there's a competition you may have lost, it still benefits the whole. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible, and then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. You said goodness. I mean, you could sum up goodness as minding your own business. And that's funny that I did this series on platonic goodness a couple of weeks ago. And that was one of the things they said. It's like, just mind your own fucking business. That's basically the gist of it. Now really? there's 200 pages of philosophy about it, but that's it in a nutshell, right? Um, the only thing, I, the only thing, the only thing, only, only little caveat that I would throw in there is um, I'm all for health 
helping other people and uh, that want that want help and uh, not forced upon them. So there's a difference of cooperation and coercion, obviously. And even in the game analogy, if we're playing a game, sometimes, you know, we've been with big family uh, groups and like maybe we'll help one of the little kids to play the game. Right. And so, um, you know, uh, I, I, there's a difference of, of helping people who want help and have asked for help and who feel good about getting help versus creating a system um, meddling to the point I think you're making, Alex, which is uh, coercing them into a situation they don't want to be in. So yeah, I'm no, put a little, little, that's, little no, that's a great there. point. It's consensual, right? It's consensual versus right. coercive. Consensually help people as much as you can. I mean, that's the greatest thing you right. can do in, in life. Probably be very fulfilling. They'll get a lot of value out of it. Etc. But don't, I guess that mind your own business to me sounds like don't, if I don't want you to help me, then fuck off. Right. Right. Yeah. Consensual uh, versus coercion. That, that's yes. what uh, and the other, just the big point here, I think is really important is if we consider how much human energy today is directed towards controlling the rules or, um, you know, justifying why we're controlling the rules. All this political rhetoric really is just uh, uh, apology, apologia, basically for for controlling the rules in different ways. If you just make a game where the rules are fixed, then there's no more human energy going into trying to control the rules because you can't. The same reason we're not out here politicking for changing gravity, right? It's just a fixed rule, and we deal with it. All that energy gets redirected into playing the game, which in economics, that means more wealth creation, right? So we're, we're like, we're defeating ourselves in this, this effort to try and save everything. Like you described the French revolution, they're running around like their heads are cut off because some of their heads are cut off, I guess, and trying to fix things, <laughs> but in, they're actually destroying things the whole way down. So, um, you know, it's funny, like, with the French Revolution, one of the things that they claim was the greatest thing in the French Revolution was that for the first time in history, the uh, the everyday man, like the peasantry and all of the classes were finally able to be involved in politics. And they kind of like quoted this as like a great thing. And I was like, and they wonder why France had like a hyperinflation during that period. And all this sort of stuff is like everyone left the work piece. And they went out to go on politic and basically right. argue with each other about who's going to take what. I was like reading this. I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. It's, it's so stupid. It's a chronicle of like the fallibility and self-deception we open ourselves up to, right? Even when we think we're doing good, uh, we, we cannot be at times. So I think all of this flows into another definition that was important, which was fitness, and you guys define this as that which fits the most adaptable, compatible, and appropriate expression or instance of an entity. Competition is its forcing function. Now, I like that you bring fitness into this equation because this is bringing the, the aspects of Darwinian reality into socioeconomics. And um, I think that I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but it seems to me that's what this whole game is, right? We are territorial animals with a really high cognitive bandwidth. So we started creating things like property to try and get along basically. But um, if you get into these games where you disrespect that line of property, you'd start reducing the fitness of the species 
Like instead of becoming more fit and more wealthy, we're becoming less fit and fat and dumb and all the things you see in fiat culture today. So um, how, how much is fitness integrated into what you guys did here? Mark, since you're a Darwinist, do you want to discuss this? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of what we're doing in the book, to the point that you made, Rob, is um, really trying to bring consequence back into life, right? And that's where capitalism comes into play, and, and fiat is is adverse to that, right? So uh, we talk throughout the book about um, having this system where not only people can move up, but also people can move down. Uh, other definitions we throw out that kind of align with that would be like moral hazard and things like that. So, uh, you know, we believe in capitalism and, 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 and uh, responsibility going together. And so to your point, I think um, using the life to go against entropy, to stay fitness, as I already kind of made that case earlier, right? It takes work to stay in shape. Um, and so I think that that's that's the way that I see how we've used that word definition uh, in the book and uh, and how it may, how it makes sense and to your point Darwinian um, eventually people make bad mistakes and they'll pay the price for that we make a, a, a story in the book you know a lot of times people would talk about Bitcoin and um, why wouldn't people just hoard it why would people spend it right that's going to be a problem and we talk about well you could be like Scrooge McDuck but there's even going to be a, a there's going to be a consequence for that, right? No one's going to love you. You'll have no relationships. And eventually you'll die and all your property will be back, distributed back to everybody else. And so kind of back to that fitness uh, Darwinian view, I guess that's kind of the way I see it. It's good stuff. Um, you know, bringing consequences back into play, that's, that's the big deal here, right? It's, um, this is skin in the game where, people that execute the actions should be responsible for the consequences of said actions. And if we have, if we create systems where uh, another situation prevails and that's a real problem, like you have today, the shareholders of central banks making decisions or influencing decisions that the rest of us pay for, right? They don't deal with the consequences of their actions per se. Right. Um, the, the example I use to, to your point there, Rob, is imagine living in a world where uh, I jump off a cliff and then you die. Um, it, exactly. it would be ridiculous, right? But I'll just keep jumping because fuck it, someone else is going to die every single time. And then that's kind of what happens. I think, you know, kind of tying back to fitness, um, for me, this was this was one that I struggled with. And, and I actually want to ask you, because um, there's another definition two definitions away from fitness that I kind of, we also struggled with like tr to try put in words because they're, they're words we, you know, use so often, but defining them is a little bit tricky uh, without using uh, the same word itself. And I mean, I, I, I did use the word fit, but I didn't use it in the context of fitness. Like I actually had this thought while we were kind of toying with this definition. And, you know, one thing people will know when they, when they read these definitions, if you put these words into like a Webster dictionary or something, you're not going to find our definitions there. Like we really tried to think novelly about these and fitness was one of those. I, you know, I looked up fitness and it's like, you know, uh, something to do with like, uh, you know, Darwinian theory, this and that. And this is very Darwinian, obviously the way I've described it, but I just thought of it. I was like, okay, fitness is if I have a circle, um, I shouldn't try and place a square into it. I should 
try and place a circle. And that means it fits and therefore is like suited to that uh, context, right? And when I, when I think about this, I think of like maturity. I think of uh, things like, you know, natural law, like nature is like nature just seems to fit, you know, you, you don't, beauty is another thing. Aesthetics is another thing that, you know, reminds me of this fitness is like, there's, there's a reason why, you know, even in the literal sense of fitness, someone who is fit is more aesthetic is that things just seem to be in their right place. And that ties also back to goodness. Like all of these terms to me in my head are kind of like this word bubble that are all interrelated. And, and I think this one is really important. And thank you for bringing it up is like our, our goal in a sense is to like put things in their right place. Like that, that's order that there's another word that really fits here really well pardon the pun right is you know order is fit is a form of fitness things fitting and you know uh coalescing together in some sense so anyway thank thank you for bringing that one up and i kind of wanted to throw one back at you is like we've got freedom in here and we tried to define it had a lot of trouble with this one you know mm. people you know when they define freedom they're like oh you know freedom is i'm free to choose it's like well you can't say that because mm-hmm. what the hell is free so how have, i know you know you you're famously a freedom maximalist so how do you tango with this one yeah i know this is a really it's funny it's a hard word because um some people would say that it doesn't have a universally accepted definition it means a lot of different things to different people um other people divide it between freedom from and freedom to, right? What coercion or opinions are you free from versus the capabilities you have or the things you were free to do? Um, I think you guys have a great definition here, first of all, which I should just read. I think this is pretty, pretty damn close to my own, I think, is the capacity to choose in the absence of coercion. So it's just giving highest degree of sovereignty in the system to the individual actor right the individual conscious agent whatever that is um so i i feel strongly i think your definition there is great i would say that adhering to that form of freedom in designing your your socioeconomic structure leads to this other form of freedom that's very important which is the option set the the amount of options available to people and i think that in enca- that encompasses freedom from and freedom to but for instance uh, a caveman 50,000 100,000 years ago whatever uh had a lot of freedom right it wasn't there weren't too many government bureaucrats bothering him he just lived in this state of nature and he could do whatever he wanted more or less but he couldn't fly to london on a jetliner Right? He, he couldn't buy Nike shoes. He couldn't order stuff off of Amazon. He couldn't you know, put all his meat in a freezer and keep it for a few years. There were a ton of options he did not have available to him, despite all this freedom he had to, to kind of go and do his own thing. And capitalism was like, we, we embedded that, right? You embed that freedom at the individual level and say, just let everyone be self-owned, essentially, and respect the self-ownership of others. And that creates this other form of freedom, which is a larger set of options for everyone, right? We get planes and trains and automobiles and et cetera. So 
I hope that helps explain it a little bit. There seems to be like a deep connection between orienting your life towards freedom and actually creating freedom, right? You're creating more freedom by creating more options um, for yeah, people one, in the world. One, one, one excuse that I see, I mean, and, and that's a difficult word that we wrestled with because uh, I think to the point you made freedom from or freedom to. So typically like freedom from what? Um, I was thinking about it in terms of uh, F.A. Hayek's seminal book was the Constitution of Liberty, and in the book, in that book, he defined what liberty was. Like sometimes those words, liberty and freedom, kind of uh, seem like they're they're similar, whereas liberty maybe is more standalone. But freedom from coercion, right? So freedom to choose without, uh, in a way that either choice leads to my ends, as opposed to me, if if I have to take the jab or lose my job, either one of those options lead to your ends, right? So I need options that lead to my ends. Um, but, um, to the point you made about the caveman, I think, I think that's a good point, especially in today's context, because, uh, what you see a lot of, uh, I don't know, whatever economists or leaders or whatever politicians you want to call that, um, they'll use this excuse that poor people, they don't have freedom because they don't have any money to buy the Nike shoes and the, the examples that you gave. Um, and so in that instance, in that in that use of the word, I suppose that's correct. They have less options available to them because they're, they have less money, right? However, it, back to this definition, do they have the freedom to choose what they want without coercion? Uh, it doesn't take into consideration how many options they have. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I, I guess the, um, the main, I mean, I would assume the spirit of this book, this definition is the one that matters ultimately, right? You could get into these other aspects mm -hmm. of freedom, but really it's about, you know, Peterson says this, uh, in Western civilization, we decided to hold the sovereignty of the individual above the sovereignty of the state. That seems to be like the fundamental step change in Western civilization that led to capitalism and led to uh, all the modern miracles we enjoy today so that to me speaks to that just just let people be free to choose right and expect similar reciprocal treatment from people and it's kind of, it's strange right because we're almost playing pretend because you don't necessarily have to give people the choice to or the ability to choose free from coercion especially if you're a big strong or a rich person or you've got a militia or whatever you can use that force but it, it's self-destructive in the long run. Like if you go and do that and you steal and kill, you might enrich yourself in the short run, but you've definitely created a lot of damage to the fabric of society, to social cohesion, trust. Um, so it's like once you violate this principle of freedom as you guys have defined it, it, it unwinds all other forms of freedom. Mm. I think there's a there's another word and I don't think it's in my in in the in the definitions that we did I'm just having a quick look oh, actually it is there all right yeah I'm actually surprised we had it in there because I've, I've been on a recent rampage my new favorite word is uh, responsibility and in the in the definitions here I'll read it it says the corollary to freedom and the ability for an individual to self-impose restrictions aligned with some future oriented desire or that which is right or moral and and i think for me i've been thinking about this word responsibility 
a lot recently. And a, a couple of years ago, I started talking about how you know, people would ask me, what, what do you think Bitcoin's most important contribution to humanity will be? And the more I thought about that, I was like, you know what it's going to be? It's not going to be something nice and kumbaya. We're all rich and happy and we're in, living in a fucking utopia. I actually think Bitcoin's number one uh, contribution to civilization will be the reintroduction of economic consequence, right? Uh, you know, the, the inability to mask consequence and, you know, socialize it away onto everyone else. I think that by and large is the most important thing. And I'm sorry, but this is going to be both ugly and beautiful and probably more ugly in the short term term during the transition then beautiful you know you know we'll, we'll get the beauty later on and I, i've kind of sharpened that recently in, in terms of it doesn't just reintroduce economic consequence uh, it reintroduces it makes uh economic consequence local again and, and that's maybe a better or, or a sharper way to define it and the extension to this is really this idea of responsibility and, and something i'm trying to meme into existence is that uh, Bitcoin is responsibility go up technology. Uh, and I'm writing a short little article on this is that, you know, we've been talking about number go up technology and, and it's a great meme because, you know, Bitcoin long-term is up and to the right. It's fantastic. And, you know, that's, that's what it does. But I think more than anything else is this freedom is nothing without responsibility because I can, could be free, you know, to go and slap you across the face. Um, but, I am morally bound, you know, by a duty or responsibility not to do so because it doesn't make, uh, you know, moral sense or it doesn't make you know, economic sense or it doesn't, you know, it doesn't work in the tit for tat sort of game theory of, uh, you know, whether you look at secular morality or, you know, divine morality it just, just doesn't make sense. And responsibility is the thing that almost places a bound on freedom and, Viktor Frankl said it really well in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. He said, what the U.S. should have done is to, they, you know, they've got the Statue of Liberty on the East. They should have a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast and, you know, to kind of balance each other out. And I think that that little phrase really sat with me. And, and it's funny, I didn't, I didn't pick up on that until I reread Man's Search for Meaning in December of last year. So, you know, about seven, eight months ago. And that for me just, like, I don't know, it just landed so strongly rereading it again now that I'm so far down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And I just think this responsibility piece, it and Bitcoin together are just so important because, you know, Bitcoin makes civilization more responsible. You can't socialize, you, you know, the losses, you can't print money, you can't inflate, you can't play a bullshit game, you can't cheat. So all of a sudden you have responsibility at the macro, but you also fundamentally have responsibility at the micro. It's, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. With Bitcoin, you finally own the product of your labor more than any other modality in the history of humanity. But if you go and send your Bitcoin to a fucking Ethereum address, good luck calling the Bitcoin support hotline. No one's going to help you. It's gone. <laughs> So like it is fundamentally like about individual responsibility. And that, that is just the, the more I sit and think on that and ponder on that, I just realized that, you know, Bitcoin fundamentally is it's freedom money, but it's responsibility go up technology. It's both. Mm. And that I'm, I'm so happy that we actually put responsibility in this piece as well. I actually forgot that we did that. I, I would say just to add on to that. I mean, this is something Alex and I've talked about extensively. 
effectively. And of course, I agree with that, with all of that. Um, but I think it's interesting, like this point in time that we have right now, where um, I've been calling, calling for this like blow off top of socialism. And so a blow off top happens when a market starts moving up parabolically and it starts sucking more participants. They want to buy it because they, they want to get rich and more and more and more people come in and then the market blows off. And so we've seen the same thing where we want the government to take care of everything, take care of my education, take care of my health care, take care of my retirement, take care, right? And we just assigned everything to the nanny state and we've had this parabolic run. And I think we have the volatility at the top and I'm calling for this blow off top. But as we've given more and more um, responsibility back to the government, um, or whoever you want to want to call in that position, I think it's starting to backfire. And I'd put out a tweet a few weeks ago, I said, I think the, the age of responsibility is going to snap back and hard. And I was thinking about specifically two things. Uh, Alex kind of mentioned one, well, sending Bitcoin to an Ethereum address, but look at all the people that use Celsius to store their Bitcoin for example, or used Terra Luna for, for yield. I met a guy at Consensus a month ago in Austin who had just sold his business. He's 50, in his 50s, had a business for 20 years, sold his business. He was retired. He put it all into stable coins and Terra Luna and lost it all. Um, and then I think at the same time, I saw like Justin Bieber, like he, you know, half his body is paralyzed now, right? And like both of those people had assigned responsibility to somebody else. And from a medical, from a health standpoint, or from a financial standpoint, they both lost really big. And so we're seeing the more responsibility that we're giving to somebody else, whether it be the, the, the Fauci's, the doctors of the world, or the financial people of the world, we're realizing uh, more and more, like, no, uh, there's massive consequence to doing that. And if anybody's going to take care of me, it's going to be me, whether it's my body, my money, et cetera. And so we're, I think we're at this inflection point. Um, the two go together, but I think there's this changing going on right now. Those are some some really great points. Um, I hate to hear those stories, by the way. People that thought the stable coins were stable and got yeah, you got wiped out on that. It's just terrible to hear. But um, I agree. There's this very fundamental connection between freedom and responsibility. Um, another definition or an angle on responsibility I, I was given recently that I thought is interesting is in the word actually the ability to respond right so if you look at the caveman again right again he's got all this freedom what have you but if he gets an infection if he gets a cut and he gets an infection <clears throat> while he doesn't have the option or the ability to respond to that infection with antibiotics so there's the you we can not only as you're saying, responsibility go up from the perspective of an individual taking more responsibility in their life, but by taking on more responsibility in the traditional sense, we increase our ability to respond to problems, right? That's what accumulating more capital is. It's more solutions to problems, right? We've got stockpiles of food and houses and all these things that, that satisfy our wants. Um, so there's, it's an interesting connection. And then you, you could also say that you're, you know, you're free to do whatever you want. You're free to go and ignore gravity, for instance, as we've said, but you're not free to evade the consequences of falling to your death, right? If you just ignore that, then you're going to die. So there's, it's some, uh, it's a very interesting connection between freedom and responsibility. And you brought up Frankel as well. Maybe he's got the connection is there's a quote by him that I'll just roughly paraphrase, but he says something to the effect of, between our circumstances 
and our response to the circumstances, there's a space that we all have. And in that space, we, no matter what, we get to choose how to respond, right? Something happens to us. We choose how to respond to it. And he called that the final human freedom. That's the one form of freedom. Mature people can choose how to respond. Well, I, I, so this is right. I think everyone ultimately chooses, but I think you could be, you could not work on yourself and respond unthinkingly. Right. But, um, ultimately I just think about, I just think about kids. Right. So like I have a daughter who's just graduated high school and, um, there's still a lot of ways that she's really immature with her own, uh, hopefully she's, she's not gonna listen to this. So <laughs> not to throw her under the bus, but you know, where I, I, you know, I'm like, you're not mature in this way. You have to be able to, <laughs> Alex is laughing. She's not going to listen to this, but, um, you have to be able to, you know, part of becoming an adult, part of maturing is learning how to control these emotions, learning how to control your response. Um, and so, um, this goes back to a lot of what we keep hitting on this thread of, of Marxism and appealing to these people who have never just really matured. They haven't learned to think past, you know, the first order, et cetera. And so, uh, that ability to respond or controlling your, uh, response to those situations, I think is, is part of that. That's a great point that, yeah, we're talking about adults who have fully developed reason and autonomy, um, definitely can't put this responsibility on kids i suppose but, um, but today we have adults right but we have adults today who have just never evolved or, mm-hmm. or matured to that point i think it's a big problem yeah yeah that's a great point there's one other i think this is a peterson quote and he says opportunity lurks where responsibility has been abdicated mm-hmm. and it's uh, as you're saying earlier the guy that put all his money in Terra or Bieber getting the jab, like you're abdicating your responsibility, right? You had the ability to choose how to preserve your capital or protect your health. And you basically passed that option to someone else or you deferred the choice to someone else. Um, again, knowingly or unknowingly, it doesn't really matter. It, it just is what it is. So it seems like if Peterson's quote is right and we could reduce the degree to which people are abdicating responsibility that we there's a big opportunity there just to create a better a world that works where people are responsible at the individual level what a crazy notion that is um anything else on that i wanted to jump back to forcing function because i think that's a great definition i know you guys use that a lot throughout the book yeah let's let's go back there yeah so forcing function you guys defined as it's a behavior shaping constraint or any task activity or event that forces one to take action and produce a result. In any system, the forcing function is an aspect of the design that prevents a user from taking an action without consciously considering information relevant to that action. In other words, it forces conscious attention upon something and thus makes deliberate or guides the performance of a task. So I noticed throughout, actually, in some of these definitions and later on in the book, you guys are actually describing a certain notion or idea, and then you'll describe what its forcing function is. And I thought that was just really cool, really cool way to to connect the definitions, I suppose. And I've also just found that on a personal level, forcing functions are really important. Like if you want to get something done, fucking give yourself a deadline, right? Commit to something, some 
forcing function in terms of time or or space or whatever it is. Otherwise, you don't have much of an incentive to move. And, um, you know, I, I think people would do well to incorporate more forcing functions into their lives. Yes, I, I took a, a blend of like Darwinist and um, engineering uh, philosophy around trying to define this one. So I, I studied engineering when I was younger and part of good design, part of good engineering is, you know, creating like forcing functions. And, and Steve Jobs was a master at this, for example, when he built the Apple uh, headquarters, he put toilets and common areas in strategic places so that he would maximize the amount of uh, interactions that people from different divisions of the company would have. Um, and he did that particularly well at the Pixar HQ and then later at uh, the, the OG uh, Apple HQ that he did. And he was huge on that stuff. So, so forcing function, as you said, it's like uh, there's an element of that, which is design oriented, like setting deadlines and, you know, having your shit packed uh, for the gym the day before, um, you know, like, you know, cr creating commitments, but there, there's, a, there's another piece to forcing function, which is just the, the natural way of things uh, that don't involve coercion. We kind of talked about Bitcoin before as a, as a forcing function to better behavior morality, right? Is, or gravity as a forcing function to not jump off the cliff, right? So, so you have this kind of natural, uh, uh, what, what would you call it? Like this signal telling you not to do something. So, so it's kind of like a reverse forcing function. But I mean, since all forcing functions, whether they're, they're reverse or positive, like they, they are what they are, these things exist and, and they create um, a response uh, tying back to responsibility or the, the ability to respond uh, by the user or the actor to orient their behavior um, around a particular forcing function. So that, you know, incentives and all sorts of stuff uh, come into this, but th this is where Bitcoin is like a beautifully designed forcing function for better, more moral, uh, lower time preference behavior, because Bitcoin doesn't need to force you to save it by the fact that it exists, it, you know, you, you kind of have this internal desire to save because you want to orient yourself around this immovable object known as Bitcoin. So yeah, thanks for bringing that one up. I think that one's a really interesting piece. Yeah. I think uh, along with that, you know, you, you mentioned is the incentive. So the forcing function is, has that Darwinian approach, but really it incentivizes you to do things. So um, to the point of packing your stuff before you go, well, now, I could quit, but my stuff's already sitting right there by the door. It incentivizes me to go or Bitcoin um, to your point, incentivize savings, incentivizes people to play the game. So um, in a fiat money system where the government could just um, steal your wealth through inflation or uh, um, tax uh, over, you know, a progressive tax structure, it could incentivize a government to provide value to you in exchange for some wealth as opposed to just stealing it. And so Bitcoin could force that function through that incentive structure. Yeah, great points there. Um, <clears throat> I'll jump down to you guys' definition of power. This is another one of those terms that gets really muddied. And you guys define power as the amount of energy transferred or converted per unit time. 
In a social sense, it is the capacity to transmit energy at scale per unit of time and can be done cooperatively or coercively. Thank you for that definition, because first of all, you led with the physics definition, which is what power is. Uh, and then you mentioned that it can be projected cooperatively or coercively. I find this even among well-respected thinkers like Peterson, he's always discussing the notion of power in a coercive or political sense. And it really, it bothers me. It bothers me to the point where I've, I've tried to start writing about this. I haven't published it yet, but um, we have to distinguish what form of power we're talking about. You can't just say power is bad. The power is bad. What are you talking about? You're speaking, you're a biological engine that's generating power to make the speech. You know, like there's, you have to move energy across time to be alive. That's really good if you value life. Uh, but the other dimension of power where it's, I'm applying coercion on you to get you to do something. That's something we obviously want to seek to mitigate as much as possible. Um, I'll just throw it over to you guys on the topic of power. I think it's an important one. Yeah, I think you, you, you picked up exactly what we were putting down in that sense is that, as you said, people, people just blanket place power as a bad thing. And I think Nietzsche was one of those thinkers who saw power far deeper than just this, uh, you know, surface level, it's a bad thing. And um, it's still misunderstood. Uh, like the the, the will, will to power still misunderstood. It really is. It really is. It really is. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's part of our makeup. It's part of our DNA. It's part of life. And the, qu the question once again, and this sort of ties into the first chapter of the book itself is that, you know, Marx makes uh, this assumption that the, all of human history can be boiled down to the, uh, the interaction between oppressor and oppressed or the struggle between the oppressor and oppressed. And we kind of, you know, say, no, that's a load of bullshit. The, you know, the, all of human history is struggles in every dimension. Like we're, you know, we're struggling against, you know, zoom and, you know, it's shit bandwidth, you know, we're struggling against ourselves and, you know, the, our future version who wants to go to the gym tomorrow and, you know, struggling against our past version who ate the fucking pizza instead of the steak. Like we're struggling all the time. The, the, the real question is, you know, do we choose to progress in life? Do we choose to amass wealth? Do we choose to uh, increase our standing in the game of life? through cooperative or coercive means. And this really just ties into the heart of this use of power. Like where will we project force and energy? Where will we transmit it? Uh, and how will we do it? Will we do it cooperative or coercively? And, and I just, yeah, thank you for picking up that distinction because I think that is, it's, it's so important. And as you said, it's just fucking flies over the head of everybody for some reason. Yeah, and, and that's something that we uh, refer to many times throughout the book, uh, talking about the difference of cooperation versus coercion. And, and it really comes from different mindsets or different worldviews of, of um, you know, abundance or scarcity. And so some people want to get ahead by stealing. Um, and some people realize the value of, of cooperation. And so uh, kind of to the point that this made here, the ability to transmit energy, and then you think about the return on that energy. Um, and so 
I think cooperation is going to have you, give you much higher returns on energy over a long period of time if you have that long-term thinking. Um, short-term thinking, I mean, sure, you can use power short-term to steal, but long-term, that's never going to you know, lead, lead to good ends. So um, yeah, we use that a lot throughout the book. And obviously, um, the, whole, the whole point of the book, I think, is to exert power to take property away from the, the rich, from the bourgeoisie, and then keep control over that, have, exert power over that, that they've, you know, they've stolen. And so we continue to push back on that and say, no, it's through free and open voluntary exchange, through cooperation, um, that's a better use of power. Uh, a good story that I love and I've, I've used many times is the conversation you and Jordan Peterson had in Miami and talking about the gameplay. And if everybody plays the game together, how much better that game could be if all that energy is going into the game and it's being done uh, because people want to play that game versus if you had to pull half the people out and use that power to force the other half to play the game. Now you've lost half the participants. So obviously the production goes down, but plus then their incentives, motivations drop as well. And so, uh, you know, could we have all the power to be cooperative or do we have to pull half the power to coerce the other half to play? It's a good way to think about it. Yeah, yeah it's a great way to look at it. And it, the, what's interesting here to me is that the, the lower we can make the prevalence of political power, right? So the less violations of property, the less theft, the less regulation, all that bullshit, the more the market helps us command more physical power, right? More planes, trains, automobiles, all of these things. So it's really interesting. And that's why I think the definition, when people just throw the baby out with the bathwater, like, no, you know, power is bad. It's like, what are you talking about? Do you like to travel? Do you like to eat? Do you like lights? You know, these are all, do you like it when your power goes out? Well, then you like power because you don't like it when your power goes out. So anyways, kind of a pet peeve of mine. This is probably obvious. Uh, all right. Last one I wanted to hit in the definition department was value. And clearly this one's super important. Uh, you guys define it. You write value is the subjective preference assigned to an asset, good or service by an individual, because all individuals vary in their wants, needs and desires, not only in relation or contrast to each other, but in relation and contrast to themselves at different times, in different contexts, all value is subjective. This brings with it the problem of intersubjective value, which can only be solved with a common medium of value or a language of value. We call this technology money. Um, just great job, like tying it back to money that First of all, you said all value is subjective. So you destroyed this whole silly notion of intrinsic value that so many people like to wield, especially against Bitcoin. And then you said, but obviously there's an intersubjective problem of valuation. How do we solve that? Well, we solve it with money. Um, really good container for those concepts. Uh, is there anything you guys wanted to add on that? Um, I, I, I might add, I wish I had, uh, listen to your series and read Leela before I did value because I might have like blended some you know notions of quality in there as well because you know they're, they're sort of you know linked but um, it's a I mean re you know reading it again now I, I think as you said it's it's a good container and it, and it and it is concise and I think it's you know one that people can you know effectively take with them and 
kind of like help them frame in their mind because once you sort of understand that human beings are always evaluating things we're always orienting ourselves we're always taking feedback in from you know the environment or the marketplace and we're in this constant conscious and subconscious state of evaluation like it's in it's in the word and as we are evaluating everything around us and the decisions we're making um we we try and create uh, mechanisms to help that process. Now that could be a non-monetary mechanism, like writing a to-do list and creating a priority and, you know, forming a, you know, a data hierarchy so that I know what to do first um, or in the marketplace and in the realm of the intersubjective uh, value problem that we have with other individuals who are all managing their own fucking hierarchies of value and everything themselves. You know, we, we need a we need a language of value and and that's effectively you know what money is and and this is i think that strikes at the heart of why bitcoin is so important because th- there is no language that is more pervasive than the language of value like we're sitting here talking about ideas in the english language um but a chinese person ain't gonna understand shit um neither is the russian person um you know maybe a german person might understand a word here and there but like fundamentally like even human uh, you know languages don't compete with money because money is just a it's a it's it's this language of the thing that we do as human beings all the time which is we're always evaluating and valuing things and yeah it's 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 a very tough tough thing to define and yeah, I hope, I hope we've done a good job here. I think it also helps illustrate um, the difference of the individual. So that's what we're really trying to break out through this book and really trying to break the individual away from the collectivist. And so talking about uh, all individuals value their wants, needs, and desires um, in relation and contrast to each other, but also to themselves. And so uh, to your point, it destroys the notion of intrinsic value and goes back to kind of this more Austrian viewpoint of it. Um, and it also pushes back on the premise that uh, Marx made, which is that the poor, uh, the proletariat have nothing of value, right? He continued to push on this. These, these poor victims, they have no value. They have nothing but their labor. Their labor needs leads to no capital. Um, and so they have things of value, which kind of goes back to how we already talked about that before, um, and just just makes it bigger in context of, of what we're in today. And so I think, I think that helps to kind of then um, when we get into some of those parts of the book where we're trying to say, no, look, he was wrong on this. You do have things of value. You do have things to, to offer to the world. Helps to kind of explain that. Yeah, it's really good. Um, and then, you know, I like, you kept money simple too. Jumping back to the definition there, you just said the language of value. And that's great because that's just, just keep it simple. Um, and that, that is the language in my Sorry, opinion. Rob, put your show out of business. <laughs> yeah. Very simple. It's a short podcast yeah. guys. Four words. Like, like Alex said, it's a secret, secret orange pill, a secret backdoor orange pill. Um, I would just say there too, that yeah, money is the language of value. It's also the language that speaks the loudest, I think. Uh, we know this in a lot of our, you know, phrases like, you know, let your money talk for you or whatever. But this goes back to, well, money being this call option on capital. And we know actions speak louder than words. We know by that, 
reasoning, then capital speaks even louder than actions because it takes a lot of actions to make a piece of capital. And so if money's a call option on capital, then well, hell, money speaks louder than actions, speaks louder than words. It's, it's just this language that speaks the loudest. And um, man, if people looked at the looked at looked at it like that, how much easier will the world be? Uh, I don't think anyone would put up with a monopoly on money in that case. Like, what do you mean? This is our most important language. Get the fuck out. Okay. Um, I think this is a good start to this process. We went through the definitions. Uh, again, really like that you guys opened with definitions. Hopefully this helps clear up a lot of understanding and arguments uh, about the ideas explored in the book. Um, let's table the rest for our next session together. Do you guys want to talk real quick about the release of the book, where listeners can find it, and um, maybe tell them a little bit about yourself, see where they can find out more about you or your work if they don't know about that? Absolutely. Thanks, Rob. So the book officially, finally, like we, we did a whole Kickstarter thing and everything, but we finally got it going live on Amazon on the 1st of August. And the only ask that we have, like, you know, at some point, you know, people will be able to pirate and do all that sort of stuff. We actually, on our first page of the book, we say there's no copyright here. So pirate it, share it around. But we do have one ask is that in the first week of the launch, there is a good chance that we could hit the bestseller list for the, for the categories that we're in. So we're asking people that are listening to this, you know, if you're hearing it on the first week of August, jump in, pick up the book for the first 36 hours, we're going to be giving it away on Kindle uh, for 99 cents. And what we're, what we're effectively looking for is, uh, verified reviews so you actually buy it on amazon and if you want to buy the hard copy or paperback by all means you know the support is welcome but what we really want to do is just hit that bestseller list as best as possible and that's going to happen with good reviews coming in and lots of reviews in that first week and we're confident that this book not only is it going to just add value to you but we hope that it captures the zeitgeist of the time and you know we're living in a world which has been consumed by communism, collectivist thoughts, and all sorts of you know irresponsible uh, anti-freedom madness. And hopefully, if this book does the rounds, it'll it'll act as a counterforce or a counterbalance to that. So that's our hope. I mean, you know, my my link will be in the show notes, uh, linktree.com forward slash Svetsky, and then people can find me on all the other channels. But yeah. Our one ask, jump in, support the book, leave a review and help us get this out there. And I think I would add to that is after you buy it, you can go to uncommunist.com and um, just uh, you can submit your purchase and you can get access to a ton of other resources that we have available. Uh, we have tons of video discussions where we've done deep dives into this. Um, all the charts and graphs that are in the book, you can download um, uh, cheat sheet, talking points, tons of other stuff that you can download in uh, on the website. So just go buy it, um, leave a review, come back and get all that stuff on the website. Wonderful. Well, Mr. Svetsky, Mr. Moss, really enjoyed this. And I'll see you guys again here next time. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Rob.